In July 2020, tens of thousands of passionate and committed people from around the globe will convene in San Francisco and Oakland at the 23rd International AIDS Conference. This gathering among the world's largest conferences will happen during a critical year when global goals for the fight against HIV AIDS come due. In 2020, the conference comes back to sacred ground in the Bay Area, a front line in the fight against HIV after 30 years. In this podcast, we'll be talking to a diversity of inspiring guests. They have been and remain at the very forefront of the ongoing fight against HIV AIDS, both at home and abroad. In this episode of AIDS 2020, I'll talk with Steve Morrison and Sarah Allender, who co-host this podcast with me. Today's focus is on UN AIDS. UN AIDS was founded in the mid 90s to lead the international effort on HIV AIDS. Our conversation is especially timely since just this August, UN Secretary General Guterres announced that Winnie Bianima, head of Oxfam International, is now to be the new executive director of UNAIDS. I'm Andrew Schwartz. I'm Steve Morrison. And I'm Sarah Allender. This is AIDS 2020. Sarah, Steve, let's start with Winnie Bianima. Sarah, who is she and why was she chosen to lead UNAIDS? Winnie is a prominent uh, Ugandan woman who has been a global leader in a number of different uh, positions uh, over the course of her career. I had a chance to meet her in 2001. Right. I mean, you know her personally. Oh, I had. A, I don't know her well, but I had a chance to interact with her during her parliamentary campaign in 2001. And parliamentary in Uganda. In Uganda. Absolutely. She's intelligent. She's charismatic. She's strong. Uh, she has a resume in Uganda of coming up through the Bush War uh, that resulted in President Museveni taking office in 1986. Uh, She served as ambassador for him to France for several years and then became a member of parliament and served two terms. Uh, Her husband is uh, Kisa Besigi, one of the, uh, and has been the most prominent opposition politician uh, countering Museveni for the last several decades. But they initially were both with Museveni. And as Museveni came to power and then held to power, they both came into the opposition. Is that correct? That is correct. In fact, uh, Museveni grew up in her household. Her father was a prominent politician, still is. And uh, and they essentially kind of grew up together. And she and her husband were aligned with Museveni for many years. And then as his uh, leadership became a little more dictatorial within Uganda, they stepped up to challenge him and have been in the opposition now for several decades. She and her husband stepped forward late 90s, early not decade as Democratic alternatives, reformists, oppositionists right. put themselves out on the line and really paid a big price. Absolutely. We're at the forefront of really trying to move Uganda to a multi-party democracy. It was a single party up until that point uh, and have really paid a personal price. And she's essentially been exiled from Uganda for uh, more than a decade. And, and her husband's been under house arrest for many years, almost for that entire period. And they were the direct targets of violent, repressive action from the Museveni government during these electoral campaigns and in between these electoral campaigns, they were subject to all sorts of violent harassment. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's an unbelievable story. So they grew up together. Yes. As children. As children, came up together, fought in the bush together, took power together, then completely diverged. 
Her husband's under house arrest. They're separ- they, they can't see each other. She went into exile and has had this incredible career moving forward. Steve, tell me about the incredible career she's had while her husband has been under house arrest. There's a couple of pieces to add in around her her career. Uh, she's 60 years old, right? Yeah. So she's still relatively young. Keep in mind, she went into the bush in 81 and very young woman mm-hmm. at that time. And she's of that generation. I mean, we had bush wars that brought to power governments in Ethiopia, governments in Uganda, Eritrea, Rwanda, in which we had this sort of new leadership come forward. She's part of that on the younger side. She then goes off to Britain and gets a degree and a a bachelor's and then ultimately a master's in engineering. She's trained as an aeronautical engineer, quite unusual. First woman in Uganda. In fact, at one point she worked for Ugandan Airlines as an aeronautical engineer. So an engineer who runs for parliament who fights in the bush, that's kind of an incredible combination. So her professional roots are tied to UK, right? So when she gets into trouble later in her career, uh, in terms of what Sarah just laid out, the confrontation with Museveni, she goes back to Britain. Uh, She then migrates into senior leadership ranks in UNDP on gender issues. Very important, Mm -hmm. right? She develops her expertise and her profile around gender, leading the gender unit at UNDP. That's her first prominent international uh, position. She then uh, graduates into being the head of Oxfam UK, 2013. She's been re-upped for a second term recently. And in the, in the course of her tenure at, at, at Oxfam, Oxfam goes through a terrible sexual harassment uh, internal crisis that predated her arrival at Oxfam, but which has landed on her desk to manage. And it be, was very complicated, very difficult to manage, and that was forefront for her. And this is relevant, obviously, to the UNAIDS because UNAIDS is just coming off a terrible crisis itself internally. What's the crisis at UNAIDS? Well, UNAIDS, uh, late in Michelle C.D. Bay's tenure, charges arose against one of his deputies, uh, Luis Lourdes, uh, by initially one woman, and then there were uh, some additional charges uh, of harassment. Those were not handled well. Uh, it mushroomed into a much broader crisis and led to his premature, uh, Michelle Sidi C- Bay's premature departure. And Michelle retired uh, in the spring when he took up a duties as uh, the Minister of Health in Mali. That opened the way for filling that position. And that's where we are this week with UN Secretary General uh, Guterres' announcement that Winnie would now become the new executive director of UNAIDS. And the assumption is she takes up her duties in the next few weeks, is in place and able to perform at the UN General Assembly in that role. So that's the background is Winnie arrives at Oxfam and faces an internal sexual harassment crisis that dominates her tenure. Uh, She also takes a lead when she's at Oxfam at defining a uh, global agenda of worsening inequality, which is something that she's really been very uh, prominent. She was at Davos. uh, She she was on a panel at Davos back in late January and was very, very forceful at confronting the plutocrats assembled there around the, the worsening inequality. Well, this is quite a backstory. So against all of this, she starts this week at UNAIDS. Are we excited about her starting at UNAIDS? And, and does she have what it takes? It sounds like she does have what it takes to, to lead UNAIDS. But what, what, what are our expectations? 
Well, I think she is going to face a number of challenges. And I think looking at her background, her legacy of uh, being in these leadership positions, speaking truth to power, um, doing internal management reviews and reforms, uh, those are going to be important skills for her to bring into this position, not only for the internal pieces, which Steve mentioned, but also we're at a really critical point globally with HIV. Uh, UNAIDS outlined uh, its fast track goals uh, almost five years ago, and we are way off track to be successful for those to meet global goals by 2020. Um, And there's a real uh, moment of reckoning within the HIV community after a decade of flatline funding, a decade of new infections staying at the same level and not dropping. She's going to really have to come in and and mobilize and work with governments, and I think that that legacy of uh, engagement at that global level is going to be important. So, Sarah, the declines in deaths—it's been a slow decline. So, last year there were eight hundred thousand deaths in the world due to AIDS, and there were one point seven million new infections, which is about the same rate as has been over the past several years. So, so this is what you're talking about, is that there hasn't been the kind of progress that we've wanted to have. Why is that? And what can she do about that? Well, I think there are a number of factors. I mean, the, the first piece is really around the financing, that we have been stuck globally for a decade. Uh, the U.S. remains the number one uh, leader in, in global HIV. We've seen reductions from all of the other donor countries, small increases from country governments themselves, but not enough to offset those losses from the donor community. Essentially, a billion dollars worth of loss in the last 10 years. Billion dollars a year or a billion dollars over 10 years? Cumulatively over that that decade. And so, at the same time, we've seen uh, really impressive, dramatic increases in the number of people on antiretroviral uh, treatment, over 23 million people now. Um, But we really have been stuck on this new infection piece. Uh, We have not been able to, uh, been successful in bringing to scale technologies such as pre-exposure prophylaxis, which could be really uh, transformative in preventing new infection. And we see now that over 50% of new infections are among key population groups, like uh, transgender individuals, men who have sex with men, sex workers. You know, These are groups that face tremendous societal discrimination, uh, policy, and, and legal obstacles. And so, the challenge now is not just getting people who are uh, sick and and dealing with the effects of HIV to come into clinics for services, but to find people who are usually young, healthy, they haven't felt the effects of their, their infection to come in get treatment, uh, to get those new prevention technologies out there, and then to deal with these these real critical barriers at country level that are keeping people from getting services and also making them more uh, at risk. You know, the big picture of the last decade is stagnation, right? High-level political commitments have eroded. The financial base has eroded. Uh, people are struggling to hang on with the gains, and we're not seeing big advances. We're not seeing accelerated progress. We're seeing stagnation. UNAIDS plays a very important role in laying out the big vision, in bringing forward quality data that updates where we are as advocacy and leadership, but it has flagged. It's faltered. It's stumbled. So the question is, can it come back? And it can come back to effectively address a really tough situation right now. 
In the past, UNAIDS lapsed into sloganeering around the end of AIDS and the like. That fed complacency. That, in retrospect, those were big mistakes. We have to get out of the sloganeering phase. We have to prepare for new technologies that are coming on stream too because there is hope out here that we can get people to refocus. Here in the United States, we've got a new focus on the HIV epidemic uh, stirred by, the, by President Trump's State of the Union address could result in new billions of dollars ultimately coming into a domestic thing. We need to reignite the, the, the high-level interest in HIV and perhaps Winnie is able, Winnie is the answer for how to do that. She does have diplomatic chops. She is bold. She's courageous. She's tough. She knows the, the development agenda. The key populations that Sarah referenced, we have to have a very strong advocate on adolescent mm -hmm. girls, men who have sex, men, transgender, sex workers. We have to have that if UNAIDS is going to be effective. No one else does that work. So, yes, there's a big agenda there. Money, political leadership, advocacy in the key populations, preparing the world for the arrival of new technologies that are going to be expensive, difficult to access and deliver, but which are going to provide new answers for us on the both, particularly around prevention. The prevention agenda has suffered dramatically in the last 10 years as we've put all of our eggs into treatment basket. She's got to be at the lead of bringing the prevention agenda back into focus. Well, the deeper issue here, of course, is what is UNAIDS's enduring value? The United States, of course, political leadership over the last several administrations, and including, as you just pointed out, in this administration, hasn't really wavered in terms of focus or budget. So we've got you know Bush, Obama, Trump all focused on this to some extent, right? Trump is focused to some extent at least. Certainly from the, you know, what we've heard from Fauci and others, we've heard from some members of Congress they'd like to, them to be more focused. We've heard from some people uh, you know, in the policy world we'd like them to sustain their focus and be more focused, but they've at least articulated a focus. What does UNAIDS need to do to keep the United States focused and engaged? I mean, I would say I think what Steve has laid out are the key functionalities for UNAIDS. And I think really owning them and being able to push the needle with other country governments is going to be key to proving its value to the United States government going forward. The United States does not want to be the singular partner out there on, on global HIV. That's not effective. Right. So what, you, I mean, what you're saying is, is, is that the United States would like to see UNAIDS get other countries to participate more financially, participate more in terms of research, participate more in terms of just overall participation. Absolutely. Getting us out of stagnation right. and into a renewed focus on this and also looking ahead into the future. We're looking to UNAIDS. I think this administration is looking at UNAIDS to be very supportive and helpful to its own PEPFAR program Absolutely. in critical ways. And Sarah can say more about that. UNAIDS hired uh, Shannon Hader as, as an, the, one of the two deputies responsible for operations, a very talented individual who came out of the career ranks uh, as a medical doctor and public health official with senior chops running the PEPFAR program out of CDC. So we have, we have good allies there. While the Trump administration has, in its budget proposals, proposed slashing our programs, our global programs on HIV, mm -hmm. Congress has not agreed to those and has kept our programs 
uh, in place. There hasn't been massive growth, but they've kept them in place. And this is a bipartisan on a bipartisan basis. What you referenced in terms of the Trump administration stepping forward on the domestic program through the president's State of the Union address is very promising. It uh, has people excited. It's the first time in 30 years that we've taken a fresh look at our own stagnant epidemic right. here in the United States, and it has people excited. And UNAIDS can be helpful in that regard. We haven't seen yet how, but it can be, and it should be. So to put this in perspective, though, UNAID's annual budget is $140 million. That's not a huge amount of money, but it's it's significant. It's real money. $90 million of that $140 million comes from the United States of America. So clearly, the Trump administration would like to see a, more of a percentage come from others Absolutely. than not just the United mm-hmm. States. I think it's also— And that's an issue. It is an issue. But I do think there is a legitimacy in that investment in UNAIDS uh, helping to protect the larger U.S. government investment in, in HIV. I mean, as Steve mentioned, we've had these uh, budget attacks over the last few years. But if you look back the last decade, PEPFAR resources, resources that the U.S. government has provided to the Global Fund, has been plateaued uh, since fiscal year 2010 as a result, PEPFAR has really had to streamline and geographically focus its its work. Um, it's pulled back from certain countries, even within key countries. It's really focused on particular geographies. UNAIDS reach goes way beyond PEPFARs in terms of its country offices, its contact with other governments. We see really disturbing increases in new infections in places that PEPFAR has not heavily invested um, or had a presence in the past, uh, including West Africa, Middle East and North Africa, Russia, Chile. So a strong UNAIDS and a UNAIDS that's really pushing other governments has the ability to extend, uh, but also protect that PEPFAR investment and, and hopefully be able to, to sustain the gains that have been made over the last uh, 16 years at this point. It's very interesting, the durability of the administration's support for UNAIDS. I mean, this is one instance where you might look at this and say, okay, there's a big push for UN reform, right, under Guterres. We've got to streamline, we've got to be tough-minded, et cetera, et cetera. You'd think on the face of it, UNAIDS would be on the block, right, for scale-down or elimination. But that has not been the case. Uh, the U.S. has remained firm in its support, has, as has the U.K., the Scandinavians, and other key European donors to UNAIDS. And that, I think, is recognition of the core value of that UNAIDS brings to the table and the belief that under new leadership, it, it can fix its internal problems, renew its vision, and be back on the world stage helping guide the response. The administration has walled off the global health program from the rescission cuts. It tiptoes around a lot of the global health programs with a certain special sensitivity that these are things they don't, particularly with the the outbreak in DRC and all the criticism that's come down around the administration's response there. It's the most recent rescission cuts exempt global health. And it is uh, not attacking UNAIDS as as one UN agency that really deserves to get shut down or, or radically reduced. So this is a real case where the administration is not shunning internationalism. Correct. I mean, and, and so why do you think that is? 
to Steve's point too, I think it it has been a, a bipartisan success over these last 16 years. There still is tremendous support on Capitol Hill, even though we have seen the kind of attrition of the initial champions. New champions have come on board, uh, and there has been success, even though we are facing these major challenges moving forward with the global response. Um, PEPFAR continues to hit its targets. It continues to show efficiency and impact. Uh, and and progress is being made. And I think it makes it a, a good sell. I think another factor is the gnawing awareness that we are not making progress, that we are at risk of resurgence of the epidemic. We, we have no vaccine. We have no cure. Infection rates remain stuck at dangerous levels. Death rates remain still alarming death rates. Financial uh, commitments eroding, political commitments. And we're not going to, we don't want to carry all of the ball on this. We have a legacy of being a primary leader in the world on this, but we're reliant on others doing their share. And if we stay in the current position that we're in, which is basically struggling. If we're only hanging on to what we have, which is the position we've been in for some time, we are losing in an epidemic that's a global infectious disease epidemic with no cure and no vaccine, we are going to regress. And so I think there's a gnawing awareness among policymakers that we are in a dangerous place right now, that could, we could see a resurgent epidemic. It could be in the places that are familiar. Things in South Africa are very fraught, very difficult. That's 20% of the global epidemic. We have a epidemic uncontrolled in Russia that's crossed the million mark and where we have very little sway there. We have other parts of the world like Central and East Africa that have not been, not been prioritized where we have the possibility. And in Eastern Europe and Central Asia, we have some serious signals there too. So I think this gets back to people who pay any attention to this epidemic. And I would put our Secretary Azar at the front of the queue, along with people like Robert Redfield at CDC, Tony Fauci at NIH. These are folks who've been working these issues for decades, and they know the realities. They're not taking a simplistic or ideological look at this. They're taking a very informed view around what we need to do. This may be crass, but is there also a simple political piece of this, that this is a legacy of evangelical politics, that you know this is something that's gone on um, in the evangelical community, that it's important to the evangelical community, and um, it's a legacy of the um, compassionate conservative movement? Well, I think it's true that the evangelical community played a critical role in swinging its support behind what George W. Bush did, which was massively expand the commitments. There is also the awareness that uh, the legacy of achievement, PEPFAR was a Marshall Plan. It was a yeah. dramatic global thing that, was, that almost everyone believes was a huge success that stabilized societies, saved and sustained lives. Uh, it was the right thing to do on multiple grounds, ethically, in terms of community stability, in terms of economic growth. Uh, and world leadership. And so beginning to uh, kick the pins out from underneath this, people do with a certain amount of, of caution, perhaps, although we do see in the budget proposals of the last three years an effort to begin to chip away at and undermine the commitments long term 
So there is some logic within our White House that we need to get out from underneath our leadership position, and we need to recognize that. But when it comes to taking bold measures that could undercut things, I think there is caution. I do think the faith community occupies a very important place. Mm -hmm. I also think that if you are going to step forward and say, we have a stagnant epidemic within our own borders, concentrated in the South, concentrated in, in key populations, in urban settings mostly, and we're now going to step up, the Trump administration is going to step up and attempt to engage with those communities and arrest that epidemic, it's hardly the time to turn around and dismantle or walk back from all of those remarkable achievements that have delivered historic results. And I think beyond the evangelical community, I mean, HIV has benefited from a tremendous uh, civil society and advocacy constituency for you know many, many decades. And that continues to push Congress and others to take action uh, and would hold and is holding the administration accountable for the proposed budget cuts over the last couple of years. So to go to the UNAIDS role at the AIDS 2020 conference yes. next summer. Yes. What would their role be, and what can we expect from that? Well, UNAIDS is one of the sponsors. It's one of the key principal partners in putting the conference together. It will be bringing forward some new analyses around right. the 2019 data. 2019 data on the status of the epidemic. People will be looking to see what are the what's the big picture vision that Winnie brings to the conference. They'll be looking at what are the new analytic products coming forward that support the idea of taking another look at this epidemic and where do we go from here. Does she tie it clo more closely to the development agenda? Does she tie it more closely to the universal the call for universal health coverage, which is now in vogue, led by the World Health Organization and others? Does she change the, the language and change the logic by which we need to understand the HIV AIDS epidemic? Does she keep a central focus on key populations, which the large anxiety right now is we are losing our focus on where the epidemic is concentrated. So I think people will come there. It will be a world stage for her. It'll be next July. It won't be the first time that she has a world stage. She'll be at UNGA in September, next few weeks. But this will be a big moment in time for her to step onto that stage and be able to say, we are back. UNAIDS is a central player. We're in the process of revitalizing and renewing its internal morale and focus. It has a lot of talent internally. Those talent need to be remobilized and recharged, and I think that will happen, and she will be bringing forward new data. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we won't have the 2020 data. I mean, 2020 is this critical moment in time for the fast track goals. That's uh, the first milestone. We won't know at that point what the 2020 data is, but the 2019 data will tell us what the gaps are and how far off we are. And her vision, her strategy about how those gaps are going to be filled, how she's going to bring in new partners, uh, better engage corporate sector uh, and governments, and uh, how she's going to address these key population issues in particular, I think it's going to be important. Well, we very much hope to have Winnie Bianema on our podcast very soon, and we will work very hard to get make that happen. Thanks to both of you for being here with us Thank today. Thank you, Andrew. Thank All right, you. We'll be back soon with another podcast with the three of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to AIDS 2020. If you want to find out more about CSIS's research on the global fight against HIV AIDS, 
Go to CSIS.org and look for the Global Health Policy Center program page. For more discussions on global health issues, check out Take As Directed, a CSIS podcast that features deep dive interviews with leaders in the global health policy space. Listen and subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.